Welcome to The Mama Village. In this podcast, mothers will share their pregnancy, birth, postpartum and motherhood journeys by sharing unfiltered stories, experiences and wisdom. Storytelling is incredibly powerful. It is the earliest ever form of education and it is the greatest way to grow and learn. That's why I truly believe mums can support other mums by sharing their positive stories here on this podcast platform. I also hope to bring you interviews with experts such as lactation consultants, midwives, physios and more because I want to help you feel informed so that you can make choices that support you and your family. There is a famous African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, and it really does, but it also takes a village to support a mother. I'm your host, Ellen, and I am the passionate mama behind this podcast. Hello to all my listeners and welcome to the Mama Village. This will be an introductory episode, which will be broken up into two parts. In this first episode, I will tell you about me, what you can expect to hear in this podcast, and tell you about my personal journey into motherhood. This will include my pregnancy, birth, and postpartum story with both of my boys. This episode will be quite long because I go into lots of detail about my births, and I'm totally birth-obsessed, so bear with me. The second part to this episode will be featured in episode two, which will be all about where I'm at in motherhood now, tips and tricks to connect with other mums, and parenting resources that I'm finding invaluable. So let's get into episode one. So I thought that I would start off by telling you a bit about me. So I'm 30 years old. I live in the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia with my amazing husband. And I have two little boys, Ocean, who is two and a half, and Halo, who is 10 months old. We also have two gorgeous golden retrievers, Freddie and Humphrey. So I think I'll dive straight into my pregnancy journey with Ocean. But before I do that, I just want to include a trigger warning here. Um, The next couple of minutes, some listeners might find distressing because I do just touch on infertility and I also talk about pregnancy loss. When it came time to conceiving my first child, I put very little effort into researching pregnancy, birth, postpartum and motherhood. I really only knew the bare basics and that was from friends who had been trying for children around the same time as us and also from friends that already had children. So I did know about cycle tracking and I did know about ovulation and when was the best time to try and conceive. It took us about seven months of trying to fall pregnant and in that time I also saw a fertility specialist because after tracking for about five months I knew that something wasn't quite right. I just knew intuitively within my own body. So yeah, I did go see a fertility specialist who confirmed after some tests that I did have polycystic ovarian syndrome and her recommendation was to track my cycle through blood tests for three months and if that wasn't successful to then begin a medicated cycle with Clomid to help with ovulation. So I do just want to interject here and say that I know I talk a lot about cycle tracking, ovulation and polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is all super confusing if you have never had a baby before, if you're trying to conceive. So when I am talking about cycle tracking, I am just talking about tracking your periods and your monthly cycle. So just knowing when you're ovulating because when you ovulate, that is the best time to conceive or try for a baby, and then knowing when your period is due. When I talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome, just in very basic terms, it's a hormonal condition which 
Some people struggle to fall pregnant if they have this condition and it often means that there are cysts on the ovaries and that's the condition that I had. So in very basic terms, that's what polycystic ovarian syndrome is. Luckily for us, within the first month of tracking with the fertility specialist, I did receive a positive test, which I was super excited about. And I wanted to plan something out for my husband to announce the pregnancy. I did do a little thing for him, but unfortunately that pregnancy didn't work out. So when I received that positive test, I did take tests every day after that to make sure that the pregnancy was progressing. Usually the lines get darker, not necessarily, but usually they do get just that little bit darker each day. And the pregnancy blood test wasn't for another week or so. And I really felt like I couldn't wait that long to find out whether I was pregnant or not. And after a couple of days of the lines getting darker, they started to get lighter. And I felt like this pregnancy wasn't going to work out. And that was really devastating. Whilst it was early days, I still felt pregnant. I still got excited. I still looked up baby names straight away and was planning out how to tell my family and friends. So I still invested in that pregnancy and I still felt connected to that baby. But yeah, unfortunately it didn't work out. And I know other women out there experience pregnancy loss much further along in their pregnancies or recurrent pregnancy loss. And I just really feel for you. I I'm devastated for you and I'm sorry that that has formed part of your journey and I'm sorry that that is so common. I wish that it wasn't common. I wish that not many women experience miscarriage and I hope that if you're going through pregnancy loss or recurrent pregnancy loss right now or have experienced pregnancy loss that you're getting that mental health support that you need because that is so vitally important. So after that loss I did still proceed with that pregnancy blood test through the fertility specialist who confirmed that the HCG was quite low, which is the pregnancy hormone. And then with the next blood test, it was back down to zero, which means there wasn't a viable pregnancy. And when I spoke to the fertility specialist on the phone, she said that we should jump straight into another cycle and move forward. And we did. And luckily for us in that cycle, we did fall pregnant with my first child, Ocean. So once that pregnancy was confirmed with the fertility specialist, she discharged her care and I booked an appointment with my local GP. I asked my GP for a referral to a private obstetrician because we had private health insurance and I thought that's just what you do if you get private health insurance. And I also had a lot of fear around birth. I mean, that's all you hear about when you're pregnant is these trauma stories that everyone wants to tell you once they find out that you're pregnant. I don't doubt that they had a really traumatic experience and I don't doubt that they think they're trying to protect you by telling you these stories and on top of that all we see in movies is women laboring on their backs screaming bloody murder and demonstrating that childbirth is extremely painful and not an experience that we should look forward to so that is the conditioning that I went into my first birth with. So I think that conditioning and lack of preparation meant that I didn't have the most positive birth experience with my first, but I also had a really hard time postpartum. And the reason why I still want to tell you my first birth story and postpartum story is that it's the whole reason why I want to do this podcast. It's really motivated me to become passionate about birth. I am totally birth obsessed. Um, I'm very passionate about mums supporting mums. And so I think it's a really important story to tell. 
So my pregnancy with Ocean was smooth for the most part. I didn't have any issues. I just had some nausea until I was 20 weeks pregnant, but it wasn't so debilitating that I couldn't get out of bed or anything like that. Um, it was a standard low-risk pregnancy. And yeah, I just generally remember um, enjoying pregnancy with Ocean and connecting with him and feeling the baby kicks for the first time was pretty amazing um, and all of that sort of stuff. But I didn't put any preparation into his birth at all. I didn't read any books. I didn't attend any birthing classes. I mean, I was pregnant during the COVID-19 pandemic and so there wasn't really any face-to-face classes anyway. But I didn't know about hypnobirthing at that point and because of all the conditioning in terms of labor being painful and unmanageable, I just thought, well, I'm just going to go to the hospital and get the epidural. I won't feel anything. And then a baby will just be here and it will all be great. So um, very little prep into my first birth. And I think that lack of preparation really showed through. So when I did go into labor, it was about 8.50 a.m. on the 10th of June, 2021, and it felt like Braxton Hicks with slight back pain. So contractions were 10 to 15 minutes apart and consistently building. I did have an application on my phone. It's free. It's called Contractions, and it's really simple and easy to use. It just has a big green button in the middle that says start, and you hit the button, and it'll start timing your contraction, and then you hit it again when the contraction's finished, and it will tell you how long the contraction went for and what the time difference was between contractions and how many contractions you've had in total. So it was really easy to use. It's just one press start, one press finish, and it did all the auto calculations for you. So Highly recommend that one. So once my contraction started, I did have this urge to clean the house. I think that's very normal. It's just your nesting instincts that kick in. So I spent most of the day on my feet, either cleaning or clearing out cupboards, or I spent a lot of time on the birth ball as well. So I had a gym ball, which is just a standard gym ball that you can purchase online for quite cheaply. And just sitting on that and bouncing up and down just really helps open up your pelvis and bring the baby down. My husband was at work, but I told him earlier in the morning that I might be in labor. And then at around 11.30 a.m., I went to the toilet and I lost my mucus plug. And after that, the contractions really ramped up. So after that, I ended up ringing the hospital just to give them the heads up. And they said, look, don't come in unless the pain becomes unmanageable, my waters break, or my contractions are two to three minutes apart. And I also texted my private obstetrician. By 2.30 p.m., I was really struggling to cope with the intensity of the contractions. And so I rang my husband and told him to come home from work. And he got home at about three o'clock. At about 5 p.m., we decided to go to the hospital because we were a bit worried about peak hour traffic and I thought I was further along than what I was. We got to the hospital, which is about 20 minutes away, and I wanted to walk in because I knew that standing and walking would help bring the baby down. And when we got to the reception, the lady at reception tried to talk to me and ask me a bunch of questions. I couldn't answer them through contractions, but I was still able to talk quite normally between contractions. We eventually got led into a birth suite, but it wasn't until about 7.30 p.m. that a midwife came in and checked me and just said, you know, make yourselves comfortable. She checked me and saw I was two centimeters dilated. I wasn't disheartened, though, because I knew I wanted to get the epidural as soon as possible. So I now know that being checked and being told that you're two centimeters dilated really means nothing. You can go from two centimeters to 10 centimeters in the space of half an hour. 
it's not a good indicator of how well your labor is progressing or how well you're doing in labor. But like I said at the time, I just wasn't disheartened. At around 9.30pm, my obstetrician came in and he broke my waters. So once he broke the waters, the pain really ramped up. I was struggling with the intensity of each contraction and I started vomiting. And just before I started vomiting, I asked for the epidural. So it came in shortly after that. And look, I honestly remember a lot of pain in my first birth. I didn't have any techniques on breathing and how to embrace this physiological pain or to tell myself that each contraction was bringing my baby closer. I really had no tools around me that I could use in labor to help me through each contraction because I hadn't put in any work during pregnancy. So like I said, quite quickly after that, I got the epidural and I was also given the gas to try and take the edge off the contractions, Um, but I didn't like the gas. It just made me feel drunk and in pain. It wasn't nice at all for me. At about 10.30 p.m., my blood pressure dropped and my baby's heart rate dropped as well. And that was really, really scary. My baby's heart rate was down for a total of seven minutes and that's a really long time. And lots of nurses were in there to try and help and... They put electrodes on my baby's head and they gave me a shot of adrenaline to put my blood pressure back up. I was shaking uncontrollably. I was scared. They put an oxygen mask on my face and they also gave me some fluids through an IV and there was lots of talk about an emergency cesarean and quick, let's get her to theatre, is theatre ready and, you know, so on. Luckily, baby's heart rate came back up when my heart rate came back up, which was soon after that shot of adrenaline. A short time later, my obstetrician came in to check on me, but he didn't seem concerned and said he would come back again later. No one really spoke to me about what happened other than to tell me that they were all stressed and they kept reiterating that how stressed they were and that baby's heart rate was down for too long and so on, but then they wouldn't tell me why that happened, nor did they really ask me if I was okay. At around 11.30pm, we decided to try and get some sleep for a couple of hours. So at about midnight, they checked me again and I was 5 centimeters. And then at 2.30am, I was listening to the heart rate monitor, sort of in and out of this sleepy state, and I heard the baby's heart rate dropping again. At this point, I freaked out. This is the second time that this has happened. So I pressed the assist button a couple of times, but no one came for a while. The hospital was busy. There were lots of other patients, so no one immediately came. I was shouting out my husband's name, but he was asleep and difficult to stir. I couldn't get up because of the epidural in my back and they told me I can't walk around and I can't get out of the bed. So I was just getting more and more panicked and frightened. Eventually, a different midwife finally came in and she was really calm. But that also stressed me out because I felt like she was messing around with the monitor for a while, trying to reposition it. She knocked the electrodes off the baby's head so they weren't getting an accurate reading or any reading at all about what his heart was doing. She couldn't figure out how to put the electrodes back on so she ended up putting the tummy monitor on me that measures his heart rate. After a few minutes, it did seem as though his heart rate came back up so That was being measured through the tummy monitor, but I was pretty paranoid after that and I didn't really sleep. The midwife also checked me once baby's heart rate did come back up and I was still at five centimeters. So she said she would check me again in an hour and when she did come back and check on me, I was again still five centimeters. So she said she would prepare a syntocin drip. So syntocin is a synthetic version of oxytocin, which is administered with the intention of starting or speeding up the labor process. 
So the midwife came back in with the drip for the synthetic oxytocin shortly afterwards, but before she gave it to me, she checked me one more time and I was 10 centimetres dilated. She said that the head was still quite high though, so she wanted to leave me for a little while to bring the baby's head back down before I started pushing. About an hour later, a completely different midwife came in again and told me to start pushing. So at this point, I had between three or four different midwives and care providers come into my birth space during labor so there was no continuity at all and I later realized in my second birth how important that is. When another midwife came in an hour later she told me to start pushing. I did some pushing and my husband was holding my hand and he was helping and being really encouraging. He was so involved the whole time. He was looking between my legs and telling me yep I see a head keep going keep going you're doing great. He was just so involved in the birth and that part of it was really beautiful and really special to see someone become so present in the birth of their child. So that was really, really special. I did ask him at one point to wet some towels and pat them on my forehead because I was feeling really hot and nauseous and felt like I might pass out at one point. And the same echoed in my second birth as well. So I used cool wet towels on my forehead again in my second birth I just um, feel very hot in that pushing phase of labor it's just how my body responds I suppose to all the hormones and so I really loved those cool wet the colder the better those cold wet towels on my forehead and all over my face and my arms After about 40 minutes of pushing, my obstetrician told me that he wanted to do an episiotomy as my perineum was quite stretched and he said I could have a fourth degree tear. But I said I really didn't want him to and asked him what the alternative to that was. I had spoken to him during my pregnancy about how I wanted no interventions in the sense that I didn't want forceps, vacuum, episiotomy. I didn't want any scalpels or any instruments anywhere near my vagina. So. He said, sure, your perineum is quite stretched. You've got one other option here. I want you to continue to push. And when the baby's head crowns, I'm going to get you to stop for a couple of seconds to allow your perineum to stretch a bit more. And then you can do one big push and try and get the baby out. And so I did exactly what he told me to. And when the baby's head was crowning and I was trying to hold it, that was excruciating And it wasn't just excruciating, it was just intense. My whole body was geared towards pushing my baby out. And so trying to stop that and hold it to allow my perineum to to stretch was really difficult. But once I had held that, I did one big push and his whole body just came out. And I didn't have a fourth degree tear. I had a small first degree tear that needed one to two stitches that I I didn't feel. So they put him on my chest and he cried straight away and I just held him on my chest for a little bit of time. It would have been about five to ten minutes before they said, look, the cord stopped pulsing, we want to cut it. So I said, fine. And then they wanted to do all the checks, the ways, you know, those sorts of things. And then after they did all that, they brought him back to me and I didn't really know what to do with him, to be honest. (laughs) He was this baby on my chest. I felt relieved that the birth was over he was here and I was excited by that and we were just looking in awe at this little boy but no one had told me that it was really important to try and breastfeed within that first hour of giving birth and 
they call it the golden hour and, you know, having that skin-to-skin time to establish a good breastfeeding relationship. And even if they had, I didn't have the tools to know how to breastfeed. I didn't know there was such a thing as a good latch. I didn't know the techniques that you could use. I didn't know about the breast crawl. All these really important things that all first-time mums, second-time mums, however many children you have, should know and should have the ability to do after giving birth. So after some time had passed, a midwife came in and said, has he had a breastfeed yet? And I said, no, I didn't even know that was what I was supposed to do. So she said, okay, we'll try now. And I said, well, I I don't know how, what do I do? Um, So she did try and help me a bit with that. I didn't feel like there was a good latch, but I didn't have this good connection with this midwife that had just come in towards the end of my birth either. And so I felt uncomfortable. I just wanted to get her out of the room. So I said, yep, it's fine. He's feeding. Um, I don't need any more help, basically. So for me, I went into the birth of my first child with little to no understanding of the impact of the choices that I was making. I didn't know that choosing a private obstetrician increased my chances of an instrumental delivery or that having an epidural also increased my chances of having an instrumental delivery. I didn't know that an epidural interrupted the natural hormone flow of oxytocin, which is the love hormone, and that a common side effect was low blood pressure in mum, which can cause baby's heart rate to change. I touched on this briefly earlier, but I also didn't know that there was such a thing as a good latch and that breastfeeding didn't come naturally. I didn't understand the fears that arose when I took my baby home for that first night and not being able to sleep because I was terrified of sudden infant death syndrome. I didn't know or understand the importance of preparing for postpartum and building a village around me. So my postpartum with my first baby was really hard. I hadn't prepared, I didn't know what to expect, and within a few weeks I sought help for postpartum depression and anxiety. Luckily for me, after a few appointments with a psychologist, lactation consultant and a midwife, I started to feel better and by four months postpartum, I really felt like more of myself again and I could enjoy being a mum to this gorgeous, gorgeous, delicious baby. When it came time to falling pregnant with my second baby, I knew that I wanted to do things completely differently. I delved into research to prepare both physically and mentally for pregnancy, birth, postpartum and motherhood. One of my favourite podcasts to listen to was Positive Birth Australia and it still is my favourite podcast. I cannot recommend it enough. Through the incredible power of storytelling, I realized that a natural physiological birth was going to give me the best chance of a positive birth experience, a fast recovery postpartum, and lead to a more positive experience in motherhood. I also did a hypnobirthing course and I read a few books. So some of the books I read were In a Maze Guide to Childbirth, which I highly recommend. I also read Birth with Confidence and Beyond the Birth Plan by Rhea Dempsey and The Postnatal Depletion Cure by Dr. Oscar Serilak. I also listened to other podcasts such as The Midwife's Cauldron and more recently I have been listening to a podcast called The Great Birth Rebellion and this is a brilliant podcast that examines and explains current research around all things childbirth. So my second birth was truly amazing and positive and beautiful and I cannot wait to get into that. And some people might say, well, she's a second time mum, the labour's going to be faster and easier, she knows what to do. And a lot of people did say that to me after I had my second birth, but I don't credit being a second time mum as the reason behind why my birth was such a positive experience. I really put it down to 
all the research that I did, all the work that I did, all that prep is really why I had a positive experience. So once I had done quite a bit of research in the beginning of my pregnancy, I really wanted to do a home birth through a publicly funded home birth program. But we were just outside of the catchment and the only alternative was private midwifery, which I would have loved to do, but at the time we just couldn't afford it. So I ended up doing shared care through a GP obstetrician and midwives at a public hospital, which was low risk, nearby to where I lived. However, in the lead up to birth, I received an overwhelming amount of pressure from the hospital to be induced without any medical reason. And so whilst my actual birth was a very positive experience, I still consider the lead up to my second birth as traumatic. At 39 weeks gestation, my GP obstetrician told me that I would need to book in for an induction at 40 weeks. I told my OB that I wanted a physiological labour and birth and that I didn't want to be induced unless medically necessary before 42 weeks gestation. But my GP obstetrician advised that if I didn't book in for an induction, I would miss out. He proceeded to call the hospital whilst I was in the room to ask me to book in for an induction, even though I said again, I don't want an induction. I'm only 39 weeks gestation, and this is a very premature discussion to be having. I also want to interject here. There is no such thing as missing out on giving birth or being induced. The baby's coming out one way or another and the hospital isn't just going to discharge you out of their care if you turn up on their front doorstep in labour. So this is an absolute and blatant attempt at coercion. My GP obstetrician then said it would be a tentative booking and he spoke to the midwife on the phone at the hospital whilst I was still in the room and told her that I didn't want to be induced before 42 weeks but so that he wasn't super keen on that idea, so he wanted to make the booking anyway. I was pretty taken aback by this, and I led him to continue to have the conversation with the midwife and make the booking with the hospital on my behalf. So he booked in the induction for the 9th of January. My due date, according to the dating ultrasound, was the 3rd of January 2023, so I would have been 40 weeks plus 6 days by that time. My obstetrician also wanted me to go to hospital for a review and cervical check on the 4th of January. Again, I was taken aback by this as I didn't see a good reason for a cervical check. It really means nothing. Some obstetricians or midwives or healthcare providers will try and do a cervical check to make a guess as to how soon you will go into labor, but there is absolutely no evidence or research behind these checks as being an effective tool to predict when someone is going to go into labor. You cannot predict when a woman is going to go into labor. It is still unknown what even triggers contractions to start and for your body to go into labor. Some researchers suggest it could be the placenta or it could be the baby or it could be our own bodies. Whatever it is, There is no definitive evidence behind cervical checks and predicting when labor is going to start. So I continued to explain to my obstetrician that my first son was born on his due date and labor was spontaneous, but that didn't seem to matter to him. My GP obstetrician continued to explain to me that I would need to come into the hospital on the 8th of January. 
he would do a cervical check, apply a tapal gel to initiate the induction process, and then I would come back in on the 9th to have my waters broken. After that, they would then start the synthetic oxytocin drip. I was in total shock about being told what would be done to me, and at no time was there any explanation as to the benefits, risks, or alternatives to these induction processes. I didn't ask any questions because I just wanted to get out of that room and I felt grossly uncomfortable. So I left that room pretty anxious and upset. I desperately wanted a physiological labor and birth and there was no medical reason for booking an induction. And I want to put in here that I thought at the time it was too late to change care providers. I was pretty uncomfortable with my GP obstetrician by now and we weren't aligned on how I wanted my labor and birth to unfold. And I should have fired him at this point and found someone else, but I didn't know that I could even do that, and I know that now. But it doesn't matter whether you're 12 weeks, 20 weeks, 38 weeks, 40 weeks, or you're just about to give birth, you can fire your healthcare provider at any time and find someone else that is going to be aligned to how you want your labor and birth to unfold and what you might want that to look like particularly if they're not explaining to you the benefits, risks and alternatives of medical procedures, which is what informed consent is really about. So in the end, I did go in for that appointment on the 4th of January and my obstetrician was present and said that he wanted to do the cervical check like we had talked about. I refused and I told him I didn't think it was necessary and nor was I comfortable with this. My GP obstetrician then asked me if I had done a GBS swab and I said no. So GBS swab tests for group B strep, which is a normal bacteria which lives in our bodies and it usually doesn't hurt us. If you carry group B strep and you don't receive antibiotics during labor, then there is a 1-2% to chance that your baby will have GBS disease, which is a very serious illness. In Australia, your healthcare provider will administer IV antibiotics to you during labor if you test positive for GBS. However, GBS illness only occurs in 1-2% to of babies. This suggests an overuse of antibiotics which negatively affects a baby's gut microbiome because when a baby is born, they have a clean slate. Their gut is just a total clean slate and whatever they touch forms part of the baby's gut microbiome. So early microbiomes help shape the baby's immune system, their digestive system and even their brain. And so for antibiotics to be pumped into their little bodies which are a clean slate can negatively affect their gut microbiome and I didn't want that for my baby. I had other reasons for refusing a GBS swab as well but this is the reason that I'm going to talk about now. I have personally experienced the negative effects of antibiotics on my gut microbiome and I didn't want this for my baby especially if it was unnecessary. What I will say is please do your own research on the benefits and risks of a GBS swab and speak to your healthcare provider. I am not a medical professional and this is not medical advice. These were my reasons based on my research and speaking to other healthcare providers outside of my GP obstetrician. What I am trying to provide you with is information that you can then take to your own healthcare provider, obstetrician, midwife, doctor, whoever that might be, and discuss this information with them. So I'm not here giving you advice. I'm here giving you information to take to your own healthcare provider and present it to them and discuss it with them. 
So GBS swabs were the common practice at this particular hospital where I was going to give birth to my baby, whereas another hospital, which was 20 minutes from us, didn't conduct GBS swabs at that time. They used other screening methods, which are separate to a swab, and you can speak to your healthcare provider about what those other screening methods might look like. So each hospital has different practices, and I sought advice from others outside of my immediate GP obstetrician and shared care. What I will do is I'll include an article for you in the show notes, which examines a Cochrane review regarding GBS testing, if this is something you would like to discuss with your healthcare provider. You can also visit the podcast, The Great Birth Rebellion, episode six, in which the hosts Mel and B break down the evidence and research behind GBS testing and swabs. So back to telling my OB that I refused a GBS swab. When I told him he spoke down to me and dismissed my reasons why, even though I had explained that I had spoken to a few other healthcare providers about my choices. And the reason why I'm telling you about my refusal of this test is that the whole purpose of informed consent is that you're presented with the risks, advantages, and alternatives so that you can make an informed decision. You should never be coerced into certain decisions about your health care. So to get him out of the room because I felt so uncomfortable, I told him that I would think about the GBS swab again today and then make my decision because I just wanted to get rid of him at this point. I found him condescending in his response and he told me that I need to decide today and then he left the room. Luckily for me, he never came back in. I never saw him after that, not even when my baby was being born. So that was that. I was then monitored with CTG monitoring for nearly three hours because they couldn't establish a baseline heart rate. My theory is that they had me lying on my back the entire time and throughout my pregnancy, I had never laid on my back. I was always on my side or I was always sitting up. Even when I was sleeping at night, I was never on my back. And so my baby's heart rate was quite high when I was lying on my back. And I just said to one of the midwives when they finally came in, hey, can I try sitting up for you to get this baseline heart rate? Because I think my baby's unhappy. And of course, as soon as I did that, they were able to establish that baseline heart rate. This isn't scientifically based, but it's just what intuitively I felt like I needed to do for my baby's heart rate to settle. And it did. I then asked if my induction date could be pushed back and this request was refused. So I asked if I could come back into the hospital for a stretch and sweep a couple days prior on the 6th of January to try and help move things along so that I wouldn't have to be induced medically on the 9th. I didn't want a stretch and sweep, but I felt like this was my only option if I didn't want to be induced. On the 6th of January, I came back into hospital for a stretch and sweep. I was monitored again for about an hour with a CTG monitor and of course everything was fine. After sitting on the bed though with no pants on waiting for my stretch and sweep for more than 20 minutes the midwife came back into the room to say that the obstetrician on duty is refusing to do a stretch and sweep as I'd refused a GBS swab. I accepted this because I didn't really want one anyway. I felt pressured but I was really upset at this point. I was mortified that I'd been left with no pants on in this hospital room and I just absolutely broke down in tears and said to the midwife, I am begging you to extend my induction date. I told her that I want a physiological labor. I had postnatal depression and anxiety after my firstborn and I find this whole experience triggering. Even reflecting now in this podcast, I still feel triggered and really upset. I know that according to PANDA, which is the Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, 
that one in three mothers experience the birth of their baby as traumatic. That's huge. One in three women. That just makes me so sad and even more passionate about giving all of you information on how you can make this experience better and the things that you can do. Of course, there are so many factors that are outside of your control and birth is unpredictable, but we can still take control to an extent of our own births and it can still be a positive experience if we change the system. So according to Panda, trauma can occur during labor and birth and it can relate to how a mother feels about her birthing experience. So this can be helplessness, confusion, abandonment, feeling sad, hurt, scared, disrespected, not listened to or ignored. Please know that however a woman chooses to birth or how a woman's birth eventuates is going to be different for everyone. Birth is unpredictable like I said before. But for me, it was really important to have a physiological birth if my baby was happy and healthy. I had done my research. I knew that a physiological birth would give me and my baby the best chance of a positive birth and postpartum experience. So after speaking to the midwife about extending my induction date, she spoke to her manager and they gave me an extra week before I had to come into the hospital to be induced. If I didn't come in then, then I would have to go to a different hospital, which I didn't want to do. I felt relieved that I had more time, but I asked her why this pressure to be induced and she explained it was due to staffing and that another lady who was booked in to be induced was currently in labor, so they could give me her spot in a week's time. The hospital was literally scheduling in women for inductions to ease pressure on staff. I was baffled and totally taken aback that the reason was staffing and not the health and well-being of me and my baby. This may seem like an odd thing to say, but I don't blame the midwives and I don't blame the managers of that hospital for trying to ease pressure on staff and improve workplace conditions, but for scheduling in women for inductions for the birth of their baby when inductions bring with it all these risks of complications is just shocking to me. And the system has to change and I'm really hoping that through women becoming more informed about birthing choices that we can make that change. So whilst I was pretty taken aback about what the midwife had said, I still felt relieved and I felt this huge wave of calm because I knew that my induction date wasn't so imminent and that I had more time. So I did feel a bit crampy in the car ride home, but it fizzled out. And when I got home, I decided to go for a a really long walk to clear my head. And that was really nice just to go for a walk on my own. I think I was gone for about an hour and I just talked to my baby and got back within that zone of looking forward to the birth and when my baby was going to be here. When I got home, I gave my son lots of cuddles and I made dinner for the family And we were sitting down at the dinner table and it was around 5.30pm when I felt a moderate to strong period cramp almost immediately. And I knew straight away this was labour and I was so excited. All these thoughts were running through my head like, I did it, I knew it would be spontaneous, he's ready and I get to do this at at home like I always wanted. And I was really excited for labour to start and I 
was also conscious of the fact that it was so close to my son's bedtime at seven o'clock. It really could not have started at a better time because I was about to have all this time to myself and I had this window of opportunity to really soak in this last little bit of time of just us as a family before this new addition joined us. So it was really special and like I said, it could not have been more perfect. So I knew it would be the last night just of us and I wanted to be the one to give my son a bath and read him books and tuck him into bed. The contractions were pretty inconsistent so I tried not to focus on them. I really just soaked in every minute with my son and it was so beautiful. We had the most beautiful bath, we played together, I read him lots of books and I gave him a bottle just at about 10 to 7 and just held him and rocked him in our rocking chair and it was just so special and I gave him a kiss on the head and I was like you're going to be a big brother tomorrow and it was just so special and I'm tearing up as I'm saying this because I will never forget it it's a core memory and it was really beautiful to have that time just with us. So soon after seven o'clock, I started timing the contractions after I put my son to bed and they were about five to seven minutes apart. I also rang my sister because I wanted her to be present at my birth. So she's also a midwife, um, but I didn't want her there in a midwife capacity. I wanted her there as my sister and as a birth keeper and a protector of that space. And I knew that's exactly what she would do. And that's why I wanted her there for that. My husband also rang my mum at about a quarter past seven to let him know that I was in labour. My mum was coming to look after my son um, and that's why we let her know. And then I had a shower and we tried to get an early night for sleep at about 8.30pm because I wanted to be rested even if we only slept for an hour or two. I just wanted to get that little bit of rest in. But reality is I didn't get much sleep. I got out of bed by about 9.45pm. Um, to try and find my headphones and I bumped into my sister Molly in the hallway after she had just finished her work shift and she said how are you doing do you need my help and I said no this is going to take forever go to bed get some rest and I'll wake you up when it's time so once I found my headphones I went back to bed and I just tried to lie back down with my headphones in and listening to my hypnobirthing tracks But I only got to about 10.30pm and then I told my husband to go and sleep on the couch because I wanted him to be rested as well. I really wanted my support people to feel rested so that they could be in the best position possible to support me whilst in labour. So contractions were now between four and seven minutes apart. So I decided to set up my birth space with a couple of tea light candles. They were just battery operated tea light candles around the room um, on the window sills, my chest of drawers basically in a circle around me in our bedroom and I also put on my essential oils. So one of the essential oils that I had was a clary sage which is an oil that is supposed to help you produce more oxytocin so that your labor can progress and your contractions can be more effective. I put an eye mask on and I also put my headphones in and just listened to my hypnobirthing tracks back to back for most of my labor. So I labored on the birth ball for a while in our room and I drank lots of water out of a drink bottle that had a straw in it and I cannot tell you how helpful that was just to take little sips of water to make sure that I stayed hydrated throughout labor. I also visualized a flower opening and visualized my grandma holding and kissing my hand. My grandma had recently passed away and I had a picture of her on the mantelpiece just 
holding my eldest son and giving him a kiss on the head. And that picture was in my birth space and it was really beautiful. I was very close to my grandma and I knew that she gave birth to five babies naturally. So it gave me so much courage to imagine her with me. And that part of my story is super important because that's where my son's name Halo largely came from. So Halo means divine light or divine aura and my grandma's name means light and so does mine as well. So it's all intertwined and connected. And so the fact that I felt like she was there with me in that birth space, again, just makes me teary because I really felt her presence and I felt a spiritual connection to her and it was just so beautiful. So it was a really beautiful time with just me in the room, swaying on the birth ball, surrounded by these affirmations and candles and listening to my hypnobirthing tracks. I really enjoyed this time with just me and my baby in my belly. I could feel him kicking and I was talking to him and I was just absorbing every minute of my labor and just considering it so beautiful and exciting that I was going to meet my baby really soon. At about 11 o'clock, I decided that I should try and get some more rest. Um, That is what you hear a lot about in the hypnobirthing course, the podcast that I listened to and the books that I read to try and get as much rest as possible because labor can be long. It doesn't matter if it's your second child. It doesn't necessarily mean that your labor is going to be faster than your first. It commonly is, but not necessarily. So I just wanted to make sure that I was well rested so that I didn't fatigue I got to about 11.30 p.m., so only half an hour of lying in bed, and I got back up again as the contractions intensified and there was no way that I was sleeping through them. I also want to note that throughout the hypnobirthing course, we're encouraged to use the word surges rather than contractions, and I will and do use the words contractions and surges interchangeably. I didn't view contractions as a negative word and often in your hypnobirthing course or the education that you might do leading into birth, they view contractions as a negative thing rather than surges, which is a more positive way of thinking. And I agree with that and I can see how that would be the case. But for me, it didn't really matter. I knew that contractions were bringing my baby closer so I had that positive association rather than a negative association. So when I did get back up out of bed I decided that I needed support so I woke up my husband and he woke up my sister as well. Contractions then got closer together so they were about three to five minutes apart and I threw it once on the toilet. I tried laboring on the birth ball again in our room and using heat packs. I had two of them that I just used on rotation and they had these velcro straps So I could strap them around my back or my belly, wherever I wanted the heat pack to be, and I didn't have to hold it there. So I found those straps really helpful. And I did that for a while, and then I decided to jump in the shower to use hot water. And I labored in there for quite a while between standing and being on all fours. I just did whatever my body intuitively told me to do in terms of positioning, And this time again was really special to me. I could see through the ensuite door. I could see my birth space. I could see that it was dark. I could still see my candles and I could still see my affirmations. And my sister just sat on the floor in the bathroom, timing my contractions for me. 
without saying much, she just let me be within my own space and within my own zone. And there was no interruptions. She was just there. She was just present. My husband would float in and out just to check on me, but he never said anything. He really respected that space. And I think he learned that from the hypnobirthing course and the prep that we had done together leading into the birth was I told him everything that I wanted in terms of support and what I would like with massages and those sorts of things. I did have a feeling that I didn't want to be touched and I think he realized that as well. So he was really just present and quiet and respected that space. I was totally in my own world and I kept my eyes shut for a lot of the time if I wasn't looking in my birth space room and looking at the affirmations. And I kept convincing myself that I wasn't in active labor yet and that it was just early stages because I didn't want to lose heart. Like I said, my sister was timing my contractions and I totally trusted in her that when it was time to go, it was time to go. But my sister knew that I wanted to stay home for as long as possible. And so she knew that I wanted to wait for the last second before I had to go to hospital and birth my baby. And it was actually my husband who said, I think it's time to go to hospital. Her contractions seem pretty close together. And I know that she wants to set up her birth space in hospital and have the time to do that. So when I heard him say that, it sort of snapped me out of it. And I got into my logical thinking brain, which can slow labor. But I think I was so far along at this point, it didn't really affect it. And I said, yeah, it's it's time to go. So I got out of the shower And my husband rang my mum and told her to come over. So this was about quarter past one in the morning. So Hart, my husband, also packed the car. And when my mum arrived, she was only a couple minutes away. So she lives just around the corner. And she came into my birth space. She saw me. She put her hand on my back and she gave me a kiss on the head. And I could tell she had tears in her eyes. She just was in absolute awe and couldn't believe that she was about to have another grandchild and she was so excited. I could see it all over her face and it was just really beautiful, but she didn't really say much. She just had that little hand on my back, had kissed my head to let me know that she was here and we just stayed there like that for a couple of minutes and that is another really beautiful time that I never want to forget. After a couple minutes of just being in that space with my mum, I realized that if I didn't go to the hospital right then, then I didn't think I was going to make it. Luckily for us, the hospital was only five minutes away. At the same time, I still tried to convince myself that I was only in early stages of labor because I didn't want to lose heart, even though I was clearly in active labor. We left home at about 1.30 in the morning and my mum had laid some towels down on the car seat just in case my waters broke in the car ride. Throughout the car ride, I kept my headphones in and my eyes tightly shut. I didn't want to be looking out the window and looking at the where we were going or the space around me. I wanted to stay in that birth zone. I knew how important that was so that my labor didn't slow when we got to the hospital. When we were in the car, my husband rang the hospital and said we were on our way and asked them to run the bath. They listened to one of my contractions and said, yes, she's inactive labor we can tell we're going to run the bath it'll be ready as soon as you get here so that was really great when we got to the hospital it was about 1 40 in the morning and I stood up to walk through the hospital doors because I didn't 
want to be sitting in a wheelchair. I thought if I walked, it would help bring the baby down, but I only took about two steps and said, heart, you need to get the wheelchair. And while he was getting the wheelchair, I did open my eyes at that point and I turned around to look at where I was sitting, like just the car seat, and I noticed there were blood on the towels. That scared me at first. I thought the baby might be distressed and that there was something wrong. But I later learned that it was just the bloody show and it's actually a great sign. It means that the baby's coming really soon. Whilst I was frightened by that, I tried to calm myself down. I shut my eyes again and I really zoned in on those hypnobirthing tracks because my headphones were still in at that point so that my labor didn't slow and my body didn't try and produce adrenaline. So my husband wheeled me into emergency and I didn't open my eyes the whole time. I just heard heart talking. And when we got into the birth suite, they wheeled me into a birthing room straight away and they tried to do OBS, so blood pressure and things like that. And the midwife asked me if I felt any pressure in my bum and I said, I think so, I don't know. And I went to stand up and my waters just broke and it went everywhere, all over the floor and I tried to get up onto the bed and the fetal ejection reflex just kicked in. My whole body was just geared towards pushing this baby out. I just yelled, I'm pushing. (laughs) And um, I think I just was so shocked that I was so far along and that I was already at this phase already. It just took me totally by surprise. And I just yelled it and announced it to the whole room. And the midwife said, look, are you having this baby on the bed or do you want to hop into the bath? And I said, yes, I want to hop into the bath. I don't want any cervical checks. And she said, yes, that's fine. I've read your birth plan. And she really honored that, which was great. So I should mention here that I think I was about 35 weeks pregnant. I gave a copy of my birth plan to the hospital and it had all about what I wanted in my birth. So I didn't want cervical checks. I wanted the room to be dark and or the lights dimmed. I didn't want any CTG monitoring unless it was just a little handheld Doppler and use intermittently. I didn't want to have to notice it. And she acknowledged that and you know that was all fine. And what I will do is upload a copy of my birth plan onto my social media page because I think that it would be a really helpful guide to others. And I know that for me personally I found a template birth plan really helpful. So I got into the bath and at that point I just didn't want to move The room was dark, my husband was there and my sister arrived about a couple minutes later and every contraction, my body was just pushing this baby out. The intensity of the fetal ejection reflex was so strong, I can't even describe it. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's just so powerful and a natural way of pushing your baby out rather than force pushing and it was so cool. So I was initially on all fours in the bath, but it was quite a narrow bath and I wanted to be fully submerged in the warm water. So whilst I intuitively didn't want to move, I forced myself to roll over so that I was lying on my back in the water. At one point, my husband asked me if I wanted snacks and I laughed and I said, I'm literally pushing your baby out right now. There's no time for snacks. And look, bless his heart, he had learned in the hypnobirthing course and through the prep that we did together in the lead up to birth, how important it is to provide or make snacks available and hydration available so that you don't you don't fatigue and even if you feel really sick a teaspoon of honey or some sort of sugar helps 
So anyway, I said, no, I'm literally pushing your baby out. There's no time for snacks. I'm fine. The midwife was also pretty good. She told me to lift my leg up slightly because I had my legs tightly closed together. And she said, there's no baby coming out unless you open your legs. So I realized that I opened my legs up and the pushing got more intense. I wasn't force pushing, so I wasn't trying to push. It was just my whole body naturally pushing this baby out. And I didn't want to force push because I knew that that increased your chances of tearing, which I didn't want. Shortly afterwards, I felt the ring of fire, which is when your baby's head starts to crown. And I tried with every ounce of my being to hold it there, similar like with what I did with my first birth, just to allow my perineum to stretch. And the midwife said, you need to stop breathing like that or you're going to be sick. But I honestly just totally ignored her. I trusted my instincts and I still held him there just for a couple of seconds while he was crowning just to allow for that stretching to happen. And then I just let go and my body just naturally pushed his head out. Within a couple of minutes, I felt another contraction and his whole body slid out and my husband caught him. It was really beautiful. He just pulled him up out of the water and put him straight onto my chest. And I was like, did anyone just see that? I just did that. I felt so empowered. I felt so strong. I felt like I could do anything. And it was just so cool to feel that powerful. And I was so happy. And I think my emotion and that love hormone was just filling this entire room because my husband was smiling from ear to ear. My sister was over the moon. It was just Everyone was so happy and everyone was like, damn, this is so cool and just in awe. And there was this little baby on my chest and just looking up at me, he was pretty quiet and he didn't cry at first and that was fine. He was just, he was still pink and flushed and I could tell he was absolutely fine. He had just entered this world so peacefully without any force, so slowly, so controlled and just into this love bubble environment and he didn't really feel the need to cry I mean my sister did give him a little rub on the back just to make sure that you know he was coming to it and he was transitioning to this world around him but he he didn't need much and within you know a couple of minutes he did start crying and looking around but I just spoke to him and I said hey baby it's me, it's your mummy, I'm so excited to meet you. And my husband was talking to him too and saying, hey baby, we're here, we're here, it's us, we're so excited to meet you. And it was just so beautiful. I didn't even know where the midwife was at that point. She could have been in the room, she could have been out of the room, but she just really respected that space and let us have our time together. And I'm really grateful for that. That doesn't happen often in hospital births. I actually have never heard of it happening in a hospital birth. We stayed in the bath for about 10 minutes and my husband just stared at us. I think he was in total awe and he was feeling all the love that was in the room. I then got out of the bath and I went to the bed where I had a physiological third stage. And what that means is I didn't receive the injection to get the placenta out. And the injection is called active management of the third stage and In majority of hospitals, 99% of the time, they practice active management for the third stage. Um, It does help prevent hemorrhaging uh, when your placenta releases. 
However, I did put in my birth plan that I wanted a physiological third stage if possible. However, I was happy to receive the injection if necessary and the midwife respected that. She gave me time to push the placenta out on my own. She did do a little bit of tugging, which I would prefer her not to do next time. So just a little bit of tugging on the cord. But all in all, I was pretty happy that I didn't receive the active management and that the placenta released physiologically all on its own because I didn't want any interruption of the natural birth hormones. I didn't have any tearing. I just had a graze which needed no stitches. So the healing process was really quick. I put my baby on my chest and we breastfed for about an hour and 30 minutes after the birth and he latched really well and that time was really special. The only thing that I would change about that was the midwife turned all the lights back on and there was a GP obstetrician on duty that came in to check the tearing situation and the room just got quite busy and full on and I wish that the space was just respected just for that little bit longer to allow that breastfeeding or that golden hour to happen. It didn't, but that's okay. That's something that I can take into my next birth to try and facilitate that. So despite the lead up to my second birth, it was such a beautiful birth experience. I think that the fact that I got a physiological labor, birth and third stage in a hospital is nearly unheard of and I could not have asked for a better hospital birth. I felt empowered with knowledge and I felt like I made informed choices. My recovery after birth was so much better than what it was after my first and I think that's because of the preparation that I put into it and how such a positive birth experience unfolded. It just set us up for a really beautiful postpartum. So this time I really felt prepared and I felt nourished and I felt supported. So I want to talk about some of the things that I did in the lead up to my second birth to prepare for postpartum. So in the lead up to birth, I drank raspberry leaf tea. So raspberry leaf tea is rumored to help strengthen and tone the uterus, which helps decrease your labor time by making contractions more effective. There's also a study which suggests that consumption of red raspberry leaf tea leads to improved labor outcomes, but this was a very small study. I also ate a couple of dates a day. And again, it's only a small study, but it suggests that dates can help with softening of the cervix and cervical ripening. It can also shorten the first stage of labor. So it was only a couple of dates a day, not, you know, large quantities. In my second trimester, I booked an appointment with my women's health physio who examined my pelvic floor strength. So she gave me exercises to do that will allow me to completely relax my pelvic floor and then allow the baby to pass through without causing any damage to my pelvic floor or increasing my chances of a cesarean section. So I highly recommend giving a women's health physio a visit in your second trimester of pregnancy if you have any concerns about an overactive or weak pelvic floor. I also did some fear-releasing exercises that I learned through a hypnobirthing course. So I had fears around my eldest son not feeling loved by me anymore. And I had fears around tearing and an instrumental delivery. I really didn't want an instrumental delivery. I also had a lot of fear around being induced. And I think that has come out a lot in my birth story. So I really had to work through and process those fears before going into labor. I don't think I ever fully processed 
the fear of being induced. I just had it in my head that I wouldn't be able to go through with this physiological labor if I was being induced in a hospital and it would also increase my chances of an instrumental delivery. So there was a lot of fear around that and I wish I processed that more because I think those fears around being induced and what that meant for me was holding me back from going into labor and there is a lot of research out there to suggest that fear can either influence when you go into labor or even stall your labor or stop labor altogether so there is research out there that supports that and my hypnobirthing course talks about that a lot and also the books that I read by Rhea Dempsey and even Ina May's Guard to Childbirth. So from all the research that I had done, I found that fear can be detrimental in labor as stress and fear cause your body to produce adrenaline, which then slows labor. So yeah, that's just a little bit about how fear can play a role or influence when you go into labor or how your labor progresses. So moving on, I did those fear releasing exercises and then to prepare for postpartum, I bought SRC recovery leggings. So according to the SRC website, SRC recovery leggings help support perineal trauma, C-section wounds, episiotomy wounds, abdominal muscle separation, and lower back pain. So the idea is that they help speed up your recovery. And I think most women experience abdominal muscle separation. It's part of the natural process that happens in pregnancy um, and even the back pain as well. So I lived in my SRC recovery leggings for 10 weeks postpartum and they were recommended to me by a friend. They were very expensive, so if you can get a discount code or buy some secondhand, that's probably your best option. Otherwise, you could try and sell them once you no longer wear them. Whilst I only wore mine for about 10 weeks, I think they really helped with my recovery, and I wore them every single day, all day. I didn't bother with the belly bands that you can buy as well for just that bit of extra support, because I felt that these SRC recovery leggings were already achieving the results that the belly bands claimed to achieve. I also prepared pre-cooked meals and I stashed these in the freezer. So when they ran out, I used a meal delivery service. This just helped take one thing off our plate when trying to look after a newborn and a toddler. My husband and I talked at length about budgeting and where we thought our funds would be best distributed to help us with postpartum and meals and meal delivery service was pretty much at the top of the list. Most of the foods that I ate postpartum were nutrient-dense foods to help with recovery. So things like lots of protein, fats like avocados and eggs, grains and starches like oats, which also supposedly help with milk supply, quinoa and brown rice. Warming foods such as cinnamon, ginger and steamy broths are also a great option uh, for your nourishment postpartum. So whilst not necessarily recommended or ordinarily considered nourishing, I personally still drank coffee once to twice a day and I didn't find that my babies were affected by it. So you can always ask your healthcare provider their recommendation. But for me, I couldn't survive without my coffee, especially after being up all night with a newborn. What I will say though is I did just make sure that I kept up my fluids and I drank heaps and heaps of water just to make sure that the coffee wasn't dehydrating me, which then made me fatigued and then affected my milk supply. Something else I did, which was also really important, was horizontal rest every day. And this was recommended by my physio. So I did find this difficult to do because I was running around after a toddler. 
but my physio suggested to get in that horizontal rest to try lie down while I'm breastfeeding, which you do often throughout the day or even if you're bottle feeding. So every time that I breastfed my baby, I would lie down and breastfeed him lying down to try and get in that horizontal rest. So it does need to be completely horizontal rest and not just sitting down as you need to completely release all the pressure from your pelvic floor. Horizontal rest is super important for at least the first six weeks postpartum to help your pelvic floor recover. It's been through a journey. It needs to recover. It might be tempting to go for a long walk or play with the other kids and be on your feet and you may feel great, but you can't see your pelvic floor. And so you don't know how the recovery is doing until you start getting symptoms and at that point it's too late. So symptoms could be bladder leakage, prolapse, whatever it might be. So rest that pelvic floor. It's so, so important and you don't want to damage it. I also loved Body Ice Women maternity care packs. They came with these gel packs for your perineum and breasts, which can be heated or cooled in the freezer to help with recovery. And I found these, oh, they were so good, especially when you're engorged from those early days of breastfeeding, just having those packs on my breasts. I preferred it them to be warmed and then I preferred the perineum pack to be iced to help with recovery as well. To help my toddler adjust I prepared a little box of toys and things he could play with for when I was feeding the baby. I also asked him to help with things to do with the baby so help changing his nappy and passing me things like wipes whatever that might be. Um, I didn't make any changes to his routine and I tried to spend some quality time one-on-one with him every day even if it was only for five minutes. Other things I did differently in this postpartum was drink heaps of water. And I did touch on this a little bit earlier, but I drank heaps, like three to four liters a day. I applied lanolin for sore nipples. I stocked up on postpartum pads and I bought these cheap, comfy bras just from Kmart that had no underwire. They were, I bought them to sleep in so that I could put breast pads in overnight and not wake up with a soaked t-shirt from leaking milk. I also had my placenta encapsulated, so I was taking those daily. Placenta encapsulation is a process where your placenta is turned into pills, and although there's no quality studies on its effectiveness, some women swear by them, and I do as well. So the idea is that by consuming your placenta, you can balance your hormones and lower your chances of postpartum depression and anxiety. That was obviously my goal, and that's why I decided to give it a try. Some women also report feeling improvement in their mood, a boost in milk supply, more energized and less postpartum bleeding. For me, I felt all of those rumored positive effects of placenta encapsulation, but I was on a low dose. This worked for me and I highly recommend placenta encapsulation by a reliable person. I also took Coloxal, so that's a stool softener every day, which is super important. It's so that you don't strain when you go to the toilet and then damage your pelvic floor after birth because, like I said, those first six weeks of recovery are super important. You want to be able to do things like run around after your kids or if you're exercising, go back to the exercise that you were doing before, be able to go on long walks, all of those things without having the symptoms of a damaged pelvic floor, which is why it's so important. So for a short-term pain of getting in that horizontal rest leads to a lifetime of then being able to do the things that you want to do. I also bought multiple parts to my pump machine so that I didn't have to keep hand-washing after every use and I got a steriliser which I could just chuck everything in 
top it up with a little water and then press a button to turn it on. So I was pumping once a day just to really establish my breastfeeding journey and my milk supply. This isn't something that is ordinarily necessary or that you need to do. It's just something that I decided to do because my milk supply is so sensitive after talking to a lactation consultant. And the last thing I did was pre-book a private lactation consultant appointment. This was super important to me. I struggled with breastfeeding after my first and whilst I breastfed him for seven months and felt I knew enough, I had a feeling that each baby was different and I wanted my next baby assessed for tongue ties, etc. and also just make sure that I had that really good latch. I have a super sensitive supply and I know that the first week to two weeks post-birth is super important for establishing milk supply. So I wanted to make sure that I was doing absolutely everything I could to facilitate a strong breastfeeding journey. So if we went back for a third baby, what would I do differently? So I would do a home birth with a private midwife if we could afford it. So a private midwife can prescribe medication, arrange blood tests, ultrasounds and prenatal screenings. They can also refer you on to specialists if necessary. And the reason why I would choose a private midwife is I want to stay in the comforts of my own home. That's where my labor with my second really progressed so quickly and how I could stay in that absolute love bubble and just really love the birth and labor process when I was at home. Majority of that time was at home. And luckily for me, when I went to hospital, my labor didn't stall, like I said, but I would have preferred not to make that transition to hospital. And I think it was only because as soon as I arrived, I was basically pushing that there was a very low chance of interventions and checks and those sorts of things. And I just don't want to risk it with my third. I don't want any checks. And when I say checks, I'm talking about dilation checks, because if I was told I was two centimeters, I would find that disheartening, even though I know that that means nothing because you can be 10 centimeters half an hour later. So basically important for me to stay home. And the other reason is that the risk of adverse outcomes and interventions is significantly reduced if you stay at home with a private midwife. Another option I would consider if we couldn't afford private midwifery is midwifery group practice or MGP if I was able to get in. So what I'll do is I'll include a post on our social media page with the research on pros and cons of the different models of care for you to have a look at. And then again, you can speak to your healthcare provider or do your own research about what model of care is best for you. If we are financially able, I would also probably connect with a postpartum doula to help with the emotional and physical recovery after childbirth, especially because we have no family around us now that we are in the Sunshine Coast. I think it would be really important just to have a support person who can help me feel nourished and cared for postpartum. So that concludes my birth and postpartum journey with both of my boys. And you might be asking yourself, well, what is the point of me even telling you this story? Well... Reflecting on my pregnancy, birth and postpartum and motherhood with both of my boys, I realized that creating a village is not only about pregnancy, birth and postpartum. Mothers need a village for life so that they can lean on a support system throughout their entire motherhood journey. It is also about ensuring us mums can thrive and truly love being a mum. It has taken me until now, 10 months postpartum with my second baby, for the Mama Village podcast idea to come to me. I realize that even as a second time mum, I still don't have all the answers. Each child is so beautifully different. Each experience is so different. Searching for resources, support and positive stories are really important to me. 
I want to really love being a mum and feel powerful and informed. I also crave connection, so I want to meet and connect with other mums who have children of similar ages who I can share stories with, exchange advice and support one another. I know that I'm not alone and so the Mama Village was born. And so through this podcast, I am dedicated to creating your village. The storytelling and interviews in each episode are there so that you can enjoy motherhood, thrive and feel nourished. And so let the Mama Village be your support. Let it be your sanctuary, your retreat. There is no judgment. There is no expectation and there is no pressure to be a certain kind of mum who can do and know all. Through spreading messages of love, support and knowledge through storytelling, I hope you soak in the pieces of advice that are relevant to you and that you learn and realise this. You are the best mum for your baby. You are powerful, you are loved and you are enough. Together, let's build a mama village and I am so excited to be embarking on this wonderful journey with you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Mama Village. Next week, I will dive into part two of this episode, which will be all about where I'm at in motherhood now, tips and tricks to connect with other mums, and parenting resources that I'm finding invaluable. And in the following weeks, I have lined up some mums who are so excited to bring you their pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood journeys and share these positive experiences and what resources they have found helpful in navigating motherhood. Check out our show notes for a link to our Instagram page where I upload pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood resources. If you would like to share your story on the podcast, please send an email to the.mamavillage at outlook.com. So the.mamavillage at outlook.com. Please let me know what you think of today's show and what you would like to hear from the podcast on our Instagram. I would love to hear from you. If you like the show, please subscribe and leave a review on your podcast platform. I will speak to you all in next week's episode.